All right, good morning, everyone. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, today's class I will have to cut sh a little bit short. I have a meeting I have to get off to, so I apologize in advance for that, but maybe about 20 minutes till uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to call it a day. We are looking at John Chrysostom's preaching on 1 Corinthians 7. And we, we left off mid-argument. We'll get back into that. I thought it might, it might serve us well to just read together the, the part, the section of 1 Corinthians 7 that Chrysostom is referring to. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and jump to verse 12, this will at least, this will at least help in some regard. Here Paul writes, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? All right, so what's under discussion here? Not a not a Christian who is thinking about getting married to an unbeliever, but rather the case where two unbelievers met, got married, and now one of them has become a believer. How do we handle this situation? And what if, what if the unbelieving partner demands a divorce or wants out or, uh, as we'll see, Chrysostom explain, creates a situation that is intolerable for the Christian spouse. What then? And so Paul is simply addressing that question. And we're going to hear, we're going to hear Chrysostom address the same question. And then it'll behoove us to go just a little further in 1 Corinthians 7 into uh, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. As an aside, I always thought this was peculiar because how on earth does one remove the marks of circumcision? Well, don't Google this. <laughs> But, but um, there, 
there's a, a really interesting cultural aspect to this. The, the Greco-Roman world loved nudity, of course, and, and the athletics were frequently done in, in nudity and hanging out in the, in the public baths nude was where you get your business done. It's, it, it, to, not, to not participate in this is sort of to not participate in the society. So, so in Roman culture, having, having a, a foreskin um, was, was required. Not, I don't want to get too graphic here, but, but not having a foreskin was, was seen as uh, vulgar and maybe even humorous and uh, not really social, socially acceptable. So, so there were surgeries in the first, in the first century without anesthesia. <sighs> To try to uh, to try to reverse circumcision, I, I've probably said enough, maybe too much, uh, but but that is an aside. So there were actually ways in which you could remove or, or seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Paul's saying, "Don't do that." You know, when at the time of his call, that's referring to you becoming a Christian. You know, from unbeliever to believer. Were you circumcised? Don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. And Paul continues, Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. You remember what was going on in the churches of Galatia that Paul has to address there. Um, some Judaizers had come in behind Paul and said, Ah, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And that shorthand really for the law and Paul, of course, rejects that, calls it a false gospel. Verse 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. This is Paul's central theme. He's repeated it now. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. And then here's a, a little bit of a controversial read. We'll get into this in a bit. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, put in per, uh, parentheses. We'll talk about that with Chrysostom in a bit. Paul continues, For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he is called is or was called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. All right, so there's the biblical foundation, both of those, both of those texts that we're going to see Chrysostom referring to in this section of his homily. We left off, at least if my mark was correct, on page 32. Does that sound right to everyone? And he is in the midst of his argument and discussion of, you know, how it is that adultery can break a marriage, but not unbelief. And you can see that the scriptures do say that adultery breaks the marriage, but here Paul is saying unbelief doesn't necessarily break the marriage. So he's in the middle of this argument. Um, let's just pick up three lines from the top of page 32. How is this possible? An unbelieving husband is impure because of his unbelief. 
But if his believing wife is not united to him in the act of unbelief, she remains pure. He remains impure as far as his unbelief is concerned. But since marriage means physical union, the sexual act through which he and his wife are joined is not affected by his unbelief. Also, there is hope that this man will be converted by his wife's influence. But in the other situation, it wouldn't be very easy. Once an unfaithful wife has dishonored and wronged her husband by becoming another man's and ignoring the duties of marriage, how can she win him back, especially if they remain as strangers to each other? A husband is no longer a husband after such infidelity. But in the other case, even if a wife is not a believer, it does not destroy the husband's marriage rights. Bear in mind, however, that he is not recommending indiscriminate marriages with unbelievers. That is why he says, quote, and he, that is the unbelieving partner, consents to live with her, that is the believer. Chrysostom continues in a new paragraph, Tell me then, what harm is there in such a marriage? The purity of the faith is upheld, and there is plenty of hope for the unbelieving partner. Such marriages should be left in peace. There is no reason to introduce unnecessary tension. But remember, the issue here does not concern those who are contemplating marriage, but only those who are already married. He did not say if any brother wants to marry an unbeliever, but rather if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. This means that if anyone receives the word of truth after getting married and the wife remains an unbeliever but wants the marriage to continue, then it should not be broken. Quoting Paul, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Now notice the language of sanctified here doesn't mean is saved. Okay, It simply means that their, their union as man and, and woman isn't an unclean thing in God's sight. Yeah. Isn't a, an, a sinful thing in and of itself in God's sight. Chrysostom continues, The purity of the believer is the stronger force. But how can an unbeliever be holy? It is impossible. But notice that Paul does not say that he is holy, but that he is sanctified through his wife. And this does not mean that his unbelief becomes holy, but that the strong word holy is intended to dispel his wife's fear as completely as possible and to lead him to desire the truth. Impurity does not originate in the union of their bodies, but in their thoughts and motives. Here is the proof. If one partner remains unclean when a child is begotten, then the child would have to be either unclean or only half clean. But Paul says the child is clean. Now quoting Paul from verse 14, Otherwise your children would be unclean, but it, as it is they are holy. Again, he uses the explicit word holy instead of not unclean to cast out the fears that arise from suspicions of this kind. All right, any, any thoughts or any questions you have? I think that this is fairly self-evident. It is not something that we see all too commonly in our culture that 
there are unbelieving, there's an unbelieving marriage, you know, two, two unbelievers are married and one of them becomes a Christian and the other does not. It certainly happens, I just don't think it's all that common in my pastoral experience. I don't think I've ever had to uh, address these particular circumstances. Any thoughts you have? Then we will, uh, yes, Bob? I've seen it happen in our family. Uh, uh, Alice's dad, after probably 50 years of marriage, came to be a Christian. Uh -huh. And uh, it was an amazing thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there, are, um, there are certainly instances where it does occur where the spouse does indeed come to faith, the unbelieving spouse come, yeah. comes to faith in God's timing. And what a blessing that is. Yeah, yeah and that's... Alice's mother was so faithful. I mean, all the kids were in, you know, baptized infants. Right. Off, you know, raised Missouri Senate Lutheran. And, mm -hmm. and the, the father just took them 50 years. Yep. <laughs> but it came along. Yep. God be praised for that. That's wonderful. So you're saying that a... A single person, which is Christian, should look for a Christian uh, spouse. Yes, yes. So the comment is a, a single person who is a Christian, um, should they look for a, a Christian spouse? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, a, a pastor really ought not marry a believer and an unbeliever. On, on the principle that Paul writes elsewhere, what, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And what, uh, what circumstances, what heartache are you entering into knowing that on the deepest of all things you don't share any unity with your spouse at all? It really, really truncates what the marriage is. I might even go a step further, as I sometimes do, and I've, I've, you know, I've changed my mind on this as as the years have gone by, I strongly encourage Lutherans to marry Lutherans and Presbyterians to marry Presbyterians and so on, simply because, simply because it causes so much heartache later on down the line between families, particularly where there's communion issues involved and closed communion, and so you have two different communions. Um, it can come down to baptismal practices, how the children are raised, and then even deeper, certain outlooks on life and outlooks on the world. Uh, theology matter, matters quite a bit. So um, many pastors will even take that, that harder line and say, at bare minimum, at bare minimum, if, uh, if I'm to marry you, you the, uh, the non-Lutheran spouse needs to take a new members class so that they at least thoroughly understand uh, Lutheranism. So these are difficult, these are difficult uh, pastoral uh, circumstances in, in a broken world we find ourselves addressing. But yes, I would, my general advice to all people looking for a, a spouse, all Christians looking for a spouse, find a Christian spouse. If you're Lutheran, find a Lutheran spouse. Save yourself the heartache. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, but when you when talk about child, what does he mean by child? I mean, until they leave the house, they're clean, or until they come to a certain age? It's a little bit of a, we're not quite, we're not quite used to thinking in these terms as such, clean and unclean, holy and not holy. Maybe the closest, the closest parallel to that for us as Americans is germs. 
right? Um, so, so if someone, you know, especially now in the midst of the pandemic, if someone's, you know, if someone's super into masks, if you're not wearing a mask, you're almost, you know, unclean, right? It has more to do with mentality than anything else. And, and that, is, that is similarly the case here. Okay, but in this, in this way of thinking, in this way of thinking, if, um, you know, if you're, if you're a believer and, you're, and your spouse is an unbeliever and the two become one flesh, are you becoming one flesh with unbelief? You know, is this, is this an unholy thing, an unclean thing in God's sight? And Paul is answering that very directly, no, no, it is not. And then this, by the same logic, if you, if you come together, would your marriage, you know, as the two become one flesh, would, you, would your marriage be sinful? Would the, would the marital act be sinful? Would the child that comes about as a result of that uh, marital act be, be sinful? And to this, Paul is saying, no, no. Um, the, not only is the believing spouse considered by God to be holy, but so is the child. So is the marriage, so is the act. It's all counted to be holy by God on account of the faith of the believer. Yeah. And there's no yeah. age limit to how long that what he's talking about as far as child or children. No, I mean, to be clear, this isn't a holiness that avails for salvation. This isn't a holiness that, you know, avails before the judgment seat of God, clearly. Um, this, is, this is, again, uh, sort of the way of thinking and the perception of the people of this time, and particularly the woman or the man, uh, considering these categories of clean and unclean, and then wondering, is my whole marriage unclean? Is the marital act unclean? Is my child unclean? Um, this would be deeply distressing if you thought this way, distressing enough that you might consider uh, uh, divorcing and separating. And Paul is advising against that here. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for your questions. Thank you for your comments. Let me see if I can find where we left off and we'll get back into uh, homily 19 from John Chrysostom. Looks like we might have left off on page 33 at the first full paragraph, right in the center of the page. But if the unbelieving partner separates himself, let it be so, quoting Paul. How does he separate himself? Here, conjugal infidelity is not the question, but what if he tries to force you to sacrifice to idols or to join with him in some immoral act on the grounds of your marriage? And when you refuse, he leaves you. Well, let him go. It is better to break up the marriage for righteousness' sake. Paul elaborates, in such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. Now, interestingly, here's, the, here's sort of the reverse side of that, and this is Chrysostom. If he beats you every day, constantly picking fights over this issue, it is better to separate. These are the conditions Paul visualizes when he says, quote, for God has called you to peace, end quote. The unbelieving Unbelieving partner is as much to blame for such a separation as the partner guilty of infidelity. Okay. So here you have not just, a, not just a passivity on the part of the believer uh, who's in the marriage, but actually an activity that, um, you know, it's not just a matter of saying no to unholy things. 
but then if you're facing repercussions or an intolerable circumstance, you as a Christian could actively separate in that instance. And you could say, this, this marriage is, uh, separation is better for righteousness. Separation is better for peace. So again, unique to these given circumstances and this situation in which Paul and Chrysostom are speaking. Okay, he continues, bottom of page 33. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Paul is elaborating here on his admonition that, quote, she should not divorce him, end quote. It is as if Paul were saying, if your husband is not contentious, it could very well prove to be worthwhile if you stay with him. So stay, give him advice, persuade him of the truth. I love this line. No teacher is so effective as a persuasive wife. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. What do you mean by persuasive? Persu <laughs> what do you mean by persuasive? <laughs> well, I'm not going to elaborate. Let, no, I think happy wife, happy life is one of our sayings here in America. Um, <laughs> You know, I think that this is, I think that this is true. This is the, the, the sort of hidden power of femininity. And it's, it's true not only in terms of relating to the husband, but it's also true in terms of relating to the children. One of, one of the biggest bait and switches that's taken place, and it's just a travesty, of course, is feminism. That your power as a woman is to become like a man and act like a man. That's to abandon the power God has given you. That's to abandon all, all real sense of uh, authority that's going to happen in any sort of positive way because if you, if you act like a man to your husband, he's probably going to act like a man back to you. And that's not going to go well. You know. And so, so when you act like, you know, when a wife acts like a wife, that's when she's the most persuasive. When a mother acts like a mother, that's when she's the most persuasive. And, and God doesn't even have to, it's, it's almost as if he, well, I, I, maybe I won't go that far. But n nothing needs to be said because the mother does so much. I mean, the, the father's outside of the house most of the day. Far more time is spent with mom. Mom has far more influence on the kids. It's that kind of like the, the hidden, the hidden um, significance and and power is kind of a dirty word in our culture. I don't mean it in any pejorative sense, but the hidden significance and power and influence and, and ability to persuade, um, it's just inherent in, in the wife-to-husband relationship and in the, the mother-to-child relationship. So I think that that's, uh, that's what Chrysostom is pointing out here. No teacher is so effective as a persuasive wife. He continues, notice, however, that St. Paul doesn't forcibly impose this idea and demand that every spouse, no matter what the circumstances, attempt to persuade his partner in this way. Such a demand would be too burdensome. On the other hand, he doesn't recommend the whole situation to be dismissed as hopeless. He realizes that much is uncertain, so he leaves things in the air. You know, and this is, this is so, such great pastoral care, such faithful apostleship. 
He simply does not speak where, where God has not spoken, and, and he lets it lie. Does that create some ambiguity and, and some consternation and some need for analysis, some need for careful pastoral care and, and walking with your pastor? Yeah, it requires all those things, but it's far better than burdening consciences where God would leave them free. So Chrysostom now quotes St. Paul, Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned to him and in which God has already called him. You can see how these thoughts connect together then. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Everyone should remain in the state in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Never mind. That's a quotation of verses 17 through 21. Now Chrysostom picks up with his own thoughts. None of these things contributes anything to the faith, So don't argue about them or be confused by them, since the faith has overthrown all these things. Everyone should remain in the state in which he was called. Was your wife an unbeliever when you were called? Stay together. Don't send her away because you think the faith demands it. Were you a slave when called? It doesn't matter. Continue on as a slave. Had you not been circumcised when you were called, stay uncircumcised. Were you already circumcised when you became a believer? Don't try to remove the marks of your circumcision. That is what, quote, let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned to him, end quote, means. None of these circumstances hinder a godly life, whether you are a slave or have an unbelieving wife, or are marked with the sign of circumcision, you are called to faith, and that is what matters. So, really, really beautiful principle here. Our freedom, our freedom is a kind of vertical freedom, grounded in Christ Jesus. And it is simply greater than than all other horizontal obligations. It's so great we don't need to set ourselves free from those horizontal obligations in order to be truly free. We're already truly free before God. He's already granted us that freedom in Christ. Rather, to exercise that freedom is, in fact, the opposite. To remain in those vocations, to remain in the way that God has called you, and to seek to do His will and His work, spread the gospel, etc., in those confines. We've got some beautiful echoes of Paul's theology and and theology we'll get into here elsewhere. And that is to see yourself as duty-bound to God, not to men. So why why is it that you remain faithful in your marriage even if you're married to an unbeliever? Because you're serving God. Why is it that you would remain a slave to another man? Because you're not really a slave to that man, you're a slave to God. Right. So, so the principle here, which is of the utmost importance, particularly if you find yourself in difficult vocational circumstances, whether that's you know, marriage or other family aspects or you know, in the workplace, employer, employee type thing, the foundational principle, the freeing principle, is that God in Christ has set us free from our sins. He's made us his sons and daughters. Life is short. Stay in the vocation he's put you in and serve him. 
not strictly speaking, the people around you, strictly speaking, serving him. Now, true enough, you serve him by serving them, right? But it's a very important mental difference, particularly if you have, uh, you know, a spouse or a boss that isn't worthy of, or at least in your mind, isn't worthy of your best. What would St. Paul say to you? Yeah, God is worthy of your best. You're serving God, not them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then to see your life, to see your life not as, and your circumstances not as an accident, um, but as, as that which God has called you to. And then, then our duty is to be faithful in those circumstances. Okay, so I think some very fruitful things for us to think about and meditate on. Any, uh, any thoughts or questions you have, or shall we go a little further in homily 19? Um, I think, you know, these words are especially important for us to, to keep in mind as our nation goes through many discussions about equality and Black Lives Matter, concept of reparations, concept of freedom, etc. This biblical teaching is very, very fruitful for us to all consider and meditate on. Chrysostom continues, Amazing! Look what he says about slavery. Just as circumcision is no advantage towards salvation and uncircumcision no hindrance, so also slavery or freedom do not matter either. In order to make this assertion perfectly clear, he says, but if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition instead. Now, you'll notice a difference between that and what we read from the English Standard Version. In fact, it's flipped. The study note points this out. Uh, that's, and I call everything a study note now because of the Lutheran Study Bible. <laughs> the footnote. Footnote 12, the meaning of, here's the Greek, malon krese, is impossible to determine from the scriptural text itself. It's, it's ambiguous. The King James Version and Dewey Reams translate this phrase literally and therefore do not answer the question. So just woodenly, it, it becomes every bit as uh, ambiguous as, as it is in the original. Among modern translations, the RSV conjectures that such a slave should avail himself of the opportunity for freedom. And that's the tradition that is handed down to us then in the ESV that we, that we read from at the beginning of the class. While providing in a footnote the alternative translation that he should remain a slave making use of his present condition. All right, well, that gives us the sufficient background. If you've read ahead, you know Chrysostom's going to make an argument about this, so we'll simply let him speak for himself. Um, again, in the ESV, it's, hey, if you can become free, become free. Chrysostom's point is going to be like, that doesn't really fit the rhetoric. It doesn't really fit Paul's rhetoric and point of remain as you are. <laughs> so... The only way to take that is that Paul is granting, he's not making a law there either that you must remain. I mean, if you have opportunity to get out, by all means, get out. He's not making a law here. He's saying as a general principle, remain in the condition you know, in which you are called. Um, but if you can get out, you can get out. That's fine. That would be the way to read that. That would be the way to read the ESV. Uh, Chrysostom has a different take on that, as we'll see. So, page 35, second line from the top. 
for what possible reason should a slave who could be set free choose to remain a slave? Paul is saying that slavery does no harm, but is actually an advantage. I am aware that some people interpret these words to mean, quote, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, end quote. This interpretation, however, does not coincide with Paul's purpose. He is trying to comfort slaves and to reassure them that their condition does not hinder their salvation. Why would he suddenly urge them to seek freedom? On the contrary, he realizes that someone would ask, What can I possibly do? I cannot obtain freedom, but as a slave, I am wronged and degraded continually. So he certainly is not urging them to seek freedom, but intends to show that a slave gains nothing by being set free, saying, quote, even if you have it in your power to be set free, remain a slave, end quote. But he adds this explanation, quote, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Okay, whether you like, whether you like Chrysostom's argument or not, I'll, I'll leave that to your discretion. Um, but this, but, and I will simply point out the, the beautiful point that is true no matter which way you go. And that is, we are all slaves of Christ. Bought not by gold or silver, but with his own precious blood. We're not our own, we're his. And so that's true whether you're a, whether you're a slave you know, or not a slave, whether you're free or not free in earthly way of thinking. In the heavenly way of thinking, you're both perfectly free and perfectly a slave. Are you getting, uh, are you getting hints of Luther's on Christian freedom here? Yeah. Boy, we read, we read Ambrose of Milan, a section of his sermon earlier in our service today, and it was, uh, or I did in my sermon. And if I hadn't told you it was Ambrose, it could have just as easily been Luther. And the same is true here. If we didn't know this was Chrysostom, this could just as easily be Luther, I think. Um, this playing with this paradox of uh, being both free in the Lord and enslaved to the Lord, which grants us perfect freedom then. You know, we're, we're, here, I've got the quote from Luther here. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Isn't that great? Fantastic. Fantastic. And so captures what Paul and Chrysostom are getting at here. All right, picking up where we left off. Picking up where we left off. As far as Christ is concerned, both slave and master are equal. Are you the slave of Christ? So is your master. In what way is the slave a freedman? Because Christ has freed you not only from sin, but also from slavery to external evils. Gosh, what a beautiful way of putting it. What a beautiful way of putting it. Freedom from external evils. You know, the sinful impulses remain in us. We recognize them, we confess against them, we try to crucify and drown them and put them away. Um, but then there's this beautiful thing, too, that we're set free from external evils. So we can recognize these external evils and control ourselves in Christ Jesus, recognizing our identity in him, and avoid them. Such a, such a fantastic way of putting it. 
So he's, he's freed us not only from sin and from its effects, you know, bringing death and judgment, but also from slavery to external evils. Even though you remain a slave, Chrysostom writes, as far as earthly life is concerned, in Christ's eyes you are not a slave. This is a great wonder. How can a slave be simultaneously enslaved and free? If he is freed from the passions and from vices of the mind, if he disdains riches and refrains from anger and all the other passions, then he is truly free. Now, quoting St. Paul, you were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. End quote. These words are addressed not only to slaves, but to free men as well. One can be a slave, yet be free, just as one can be free, but in fact a slave. Again, how can a slave be simultaneously enslaved and free? When he does everything for God's sake. I mean, that's it, full stop. He continues, but that's it. When you do everything for God's sake, it's exactly as Luther says. You're the free Lord of all and subject to none except God himself. And yet you are also then in that freedom, the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. So we can be simultaneously enslaved and free when we do everything for God's sake. Chrysostom continues, when he does everything for God's sake, deceives no one, and doesn't shirk the work assigned to him, that is how someone held in bondage to another can be free. So it's, you know, it's, not only, it's not only in the relationship to that other person, but in relationship to oneself and one's own sinful passions and um, anger and greed and all of these other things that um, Chrysostom quotes. There's a freedom to, to setting all of these things aside in Christ. When he does everything for God's sake, deceives no one and doesn't shirk the work assigned to him. That is how someone held in bondage to another can be free. And how can a free man become a slave? When he serves others men, other men whose goals are evil. Whether they are gluttony or the lust for riches or political power. Such a person, even though he is free, is more a slave than any man. Would that we had eyes to see this. So often what we think our problems are aren't really our problems. They're simply revealing the problems that are inside of us and in our way of thinking about life and not seeing our relationship to God as we ought. Well, I would, as I said, I've got to leave this class a little early today, and we're about a minute shy. I would simply like to, like to break here because that gives me opportunity to go over it one more time with you again next week and also answer any questions that you might have. The Lord be with you. You'll be back for Bible class.